Welcome back to another episode of Pour Me Another. It's your host, John, and I am recording another episode of your favorite podcast, the podcast in a closet, except that I'm not in a closet. And I haven't been for some time. Uh, the last like couple episodes, uh, I haven't uh, I haven't been in the the white trash sound booth because it's hot as fuck in there right now, and I don't have AC in that room, so uh, I'm recording from my bedroom where I do have air conditioning. And uh, the I, what I do is I I run it for a while and then I turn it off and record, and that way I'm not making a big fucking shitload of noise in the background to, um. Well, you know, you ever heard an air conditioner running in the background of a podcast? It sounds like shit. So I turned that fucking thing off. I'm in my room and I'm sitting in front of my computer, uh, my computer desk, and I've got pillows all around my desk. And uh, yeah, that's how I'm recording this thing. So uh, yeah, let's see. Uh, Today we are doing the recap of the happy news in the month of August. And then uh, I'm going to do an aircraft of the month. And our aircraft of the month is the Supermarine Spitfire. And then I'm going to do, I'm going to talk about aviation in America. Uh, See, after that last episode where I discussed my job as a airport manager, I had a lot of people ask me questions about, so what is it that you do? Were you like an air traffic controller or something? And I was like, no, I was an airport manager. It's a totally different job. Anyway, I, I wanted to give you guys a general breakdown of how aviation in the United States of America works. Uh, I don't, I don't really know internationally as well, but I do know a lot about American aviation. So I wanted to give you guys a breakdown of how that system works and what, and what my life was and how I fit into that, uh, as, as I was working at the airport, by the way, name of the show is pour me another. And today I am drinking, of course, a glass of bourbon. It's my favorite. I got my bullet cup and I got, uh, you can hear the ice clinking around in there. Ah, that's fucking delicious. By the way, uh, before we get really going, um, I wanted to uh, tell you guys, I know it's been a couple weeks since I made the last episode. Um, as I told you before, uh, my life is in kind of a transitional period. I'm going through changes. I'm going through changes. And the terrible song. Who sings that song? I'm going through, is that Guns N' Roses? Fuck, I don't know. Anyway, I'm going through changes. Uh, I have a new job. I'm no longer working as an airport manager. I am now working as a salesperson. Uh, business to business. I'm doing IT sales for a company here in Galax. And uh, so if you guys have any uh, needs from an IT company, boy, do I have the hookup. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm doing IT sales. Uh, I've, I've done sales before. I have a lot of experience in sales and, uh, uh, you know, I'm fully equipped and, and, and I'm like the perfect guy to do the sales job. Anyway, that's what I'm doing uh, out of the aviation business. Anyway, last couple of weeks, I've been getting used to the new job and the new life and new lifestyle working for, a, you know, a more civilian company, a privately owned company, as opposed to an airport, a government entity. And I have a lot, a lot of things to do. My free time has been sort of, um, consumed by that and by some other personal projects I've been, uh, you know, doing to try and get my life back on track after everything that's happened this summer. So, uh, I, I, like I said before, I'm going to try and bang out as many episodes as I can for the rest of the summer, but I'm, I'm a little preoccupied in a lot of ways with, uh, the new job and the new, um, sort of life situation that I've got going on at home. Uh, you know, so that's where I'm at. Uh, anyway, without further ado, we will go right into the recap of, the some, some of the happier points of news in August, 2019. Uh, by the way, 
Before I continue, I want to tell you that this episode I'm doing in front of my laptop, and I've got all these articles pulled up online. I used to take notes and write shit down, but that's that's just too much fucking work. So I, I have a computer in front of me, and I'm, I'm looking at articles and, and things, and that's where I'm getting my information from. This, this article is from New York Times, and uh, the first piece of positive news in the month of August 2019, about 160,000 people in New York to see their marijuana convictions disappear fuck yeah i think i already spoke that they were going to do this uh back in june or something i mentioned it but yeah they finally went ahead and did it under a new law new york state will expunge the records of those convicted of low-level marijuana crimes marijuana crimes i almost said it uh 160,000 people with marijuana convictions in the state will have those convictions cleared from their record that's per the state division of criminal justice services of those people 10,872 people with convictions in New York City will have no criminal records in the state. In the rest of the state, uh, the number is 13,537. So 10,872 people in the city of New York will have no criminal record after this law takes effect, which I think it was like it was in August that this happened, that that they did this. And so in the rest of the state of New York, 13,537, they will have no criminal record. Uh, that, that means that, you know, basically what that means is that 160,000 people saw their marijuana convictions disappear. That doesn't mean that, you know, all of those people are no longer criminals. <laughs> it turns out that in, in the world of crime, uh, people who have one conviction usually have a bunch of others. <laughs> it's a pattern of behavior. So the people in, but what, around 23,000, 24,000 people in the entire state of New York will no longer have any record because their only convictions were low-level marijuana convictions. So that is fucking awesome. Because, as we all know, pot isn't really harmful. It doesn't do anything. I mean, every time I've ever been high in my life, like, I haven't been like, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna go, I'm gonna fucking do some criminal shit and steal some stuff and I'm fucking rape some people and and I'm fucking shoot people up. Oh, goddamn, I took four marijuanas and now I want to murder. That's not how it works. Pot's not like that. Pot doesn't make people do criminal shit. Pot makes people fucking hungry. Marijuana leads to couch potato and driving too slow, you know? Red eye syndrome and, and lots of Funyuns and fucking zebra cakes consumed. It's so stupid. I, I, I am a firm believer that marijuana should be legalized in this country, so that's an excellent step, you know, New York taking that, that first step. So that's outstanding news. 160,000 people to see their marijuana convictions disappear all right first news the second piece of news is coming from a website called av club Hmm. bang bros (laughs) they're a porn website for those of you who don't know what bang bros is bang bros buys porn doxing site and they set fire to the drives of that site what does doxing mean d-o-x-x dox when you dox somebody that's when someone goes on the internet and um releases personal private information about someone someone who might be famous someone um well they're normally famous and they're they're normally famous in some capacity on the internet and uh or or, or in you know a more conventional um context they're famous and doxing them means releasing their private information like where they're from what their phone number is their address their real name blah 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 and so there was this website called uh i what was it called porn wiki leaks 
Porn WikiLeaks. It was a doxing site for porn stars. People would put out the the names and contact information, like even their addresses for people that had done porn. And it was a huge, huge database of information. I mean, there was, uh, uh, you know, information on thousands and thousands of people that had done adult films and photos. And so Bang Bros, which is an online porn company, they make, they make internet porn. They bought this website, pornwikileaks.com, and then they collected all of these hard drives from porn WikiLeaks and they burned them and shut down the website. And it was a way for them to say, fuck you to people who have been using porn WikiLeaks for, you know, years and years to dox and, you know, hurt the lives of people that have done adult films. And, and, and that's terrible. I mean, this is supposed to be the land of the free home of the brave, right? How brave is it of anyone? to look up the fucking personal credentials of a, of a porn star and then out them and, and make them miserable. I mean, that's, that's horrible. That's fucking horrible. You know, it, we have a right to fuck who we want to fuck and, and make porn if we want to make porn. And, you know, that, 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 that should not brand a person as subhuman. I don't believe that. I think that's, that's asinine. I've already previously mentioned my beliefs on sex workers in America, but, but porn, that's a, that's a, that's a utility. An extremely valuable utility to those of us who are sexually frustrated. Those people are are exposing themselves and being big, dirty sluts on camera so that we could catch a nut and go back to being a normal fucking person. I Look, man, one of the greatest gifts the modern age ever gave me was internet porn. If I didn't have access to internet porn, I would have blown my brains out years ago. That, that's probably not true. I'm not suicidal. I, I've never been suicidal. But the point is, I, 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 I love having access to adult material that I can. It's just it's, it's like I said, it's a fucking tool. It's a utility. It's I see I, I, I you know, I get the horny thoughts <laughs> and then I look at my dick and I'm like, ah, fuck, here we go again. And then I jerk off to Internet porn. And, you know, 10 minutes later, I'm like, what the fuck? Where, what happened? Where am I? What's happening? Oh, right. OK, I came. OK, I'm back to normal now. And I can be a fucking person again. And so <laughs> with. You know, the people that have given us that beautiful gift, <laughs> the beautiful gift of porn, uh, they shouldn't be tortured. I don't think that they should be tortured. So I think it's a really good thing that Bang Bros went and took care of this bullshit website, pornwikileaks.com. Goodbye to you. Fuck you. All right. Next up uh, is a, the next news story is about uh, a famous singer who I've actually been a fan of for a long time. I remember I was in South Korea. And I went to this bar, and it was called Matthew's Sports Bar and Grill in um, Tongdushan, Korea. Tongdushan is the, the ville, the town outside of the base I was at, Camp Casey, which was the biggest northernmost American military installation in South Korea. And so I was, I was actually on Hovi, which was like a, a small little offshoot of Casey. But right outside the main gate of Casey was this town called TDC, Tongdushan. And... Uh, there was a bar out there called Matthew's Sports Bar and Grill. And I would go every now and then and get a beer or a drink or whatever and just hang out. And I remember this one of the first times that I ever went to this place. I'm sitting there and this music video comes on. And it's this crazy hot little blonde, platinum blonde looking thing. And a woman in a, <laughs> uh, uh, like a teal blue weird dress deal onesie with a crown on. And she's singing about some crazy shit at a pool. And, you know, it's all about poking her in the face. and. <laughs> it was Lady Gaga and it was it was Poker Face and I was just in the right state of mind to think that the music video was one of the coolest things I'd ever seen and so I've been a fan of Lady Gaga's ever since turns out that Lady Gaga 
is a really cool person and has done a lot of really good things for people. And and the most recent or the I'm sorry, the third positive news story of the month of August is about Lady Gaga. The story is that, okay, so everybody knows about the horrible things that happened in the cities of Dayton, Ohio, El Paso, Texas, and Gilroy, California in the last couple months or last month, I think it was. There were shootings and a lot of people died. Um, Lady Gaga wrote a victim or a letter to the victims of those, the families of the victims of the mass shootings in El Paso, Dayton, and Gilroy. Sorry. Took me a minute to get that together. She wrote a letter to the families of those victims and the victims who had survived. Um, in, in that letter, she said that she was going to fully fund classroom projects in each of those cities. And so, let's see, uh, 14 classrooms in Dayton, 125 classrooms in El Paso, and 23 classrooms in Gilroy will now have access to the support they need to support to inspire their students to work together and bring their dreams to life. Now, what exactly that means, I, I couldn't find uh, like a, a more precise thing about what that is, but she's helping. It's called DonorsChoose.org is the organization. Uh, and so she's fully funding these classrooms through that organization to help children learn. So, you know, I... And what what she's basically doing is it's it's her way of honoring and remembering the victims of those shootings by helping to provide education to children in the towns in which those shootings took place. And so that's positive. That's uplifting. And it turns out that Lady Gaga does a lot of uh, philanthropic things like this to to help people in, in communities. Um, so that's what's happening with Miss Gaga. That was August 9th is when she issued that statement. Yeah, Lady Gaga. Turned out to be pretty pretty interesting individual, that one. I remember when I first saw her, I thought like, oh, just another little blonde pop star. And it turns out she's actually really smart. Funny story, personal story. A friend of mine, a, a lady I know here in Galax, went to high school with Lady Gaga. Her real name is Stephanie Germanata. And she said that Stephanie was a, a very... Um, interesting and, and, and dramatic kind of person who was like queen of the drama and, and glee club. So Lady Gaga, meet suit Gaga, uh, helping kids out in cities affected by mass shooting. More positive news. Okay, a fourth story for the month of August. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker signed a bill for his state legislation that raises the minimum salary for teachers in that state, Illinois, to $40,000 a year. That is the minimum salary for a teacher in the state of Illinois now. 40 grand. That's great. That is fucking awesome. $40,000. $40, that's the start. That is now the starting pay for a, a, a teacher. That's where they should be. You know, one of the biggest issues that we have in America right now. Excuse me. I need more drink. I'm not going to try to get too political with this, but I, I think we can all mostly agree that one of the biggest issues we're facing in our country today is, is wealth disparity. Americans aren't making enough money proportionate to the amount of work that they're doing. That's just economics 101. And people have been trying to get the minimum wage raised for a long time. And minimum wage is one of those things we can argue about all day long. That's economics. I don't want to get into that. But teachers nationwide, I think we can all agree, it is, is well-documented, documented are grossly underpaid for the amount of work that they do. 
and the, the amount of responsibility and liability that they carry in this country. And so the fact that the Illinois legislation has gone and the Illinois legislature, captained by Governor J.B. Pritzker, has gone and raised their minimum salary to $40,000 a year is fucking awesome. And that's something, you know, if I, I don't I don't know what the standard of living or the cost of living in a place like Illinois is. But, you know, I, I feel like Illinois is probably pretty rural in a lot of places, with the exception of Chicago. But, you know, it's a it's a central U.S. state. I'm sure there's plenty of 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 lower income areas where 40 grand is going going to go a lot further for a new teacher or a, or a low paid teacher than what they were making previously. You know, 40 grand in where I'm from here in, in this place, this is a, we live in a very economically depressed zone in, you know, in this, this, this part of Virginia. And so I imagine if there are zones like that in Illinois, 40 grand is going to go a long way when it goes a long way here. So anyway, good news from Illinois teachers getting paid more money. That's always good. They deserve it. They have a big job educating the the youngsters and uh, uh, the the future of our society. <laughs> so what was that? Was that uh, that was the fourth piece of news? Teachers in Illinois, and the fifth and final. I always like to throw some uh, some space news in there. Now I, I I don't I don't you know this this is this is more sciencey, so it's not necessarily good or bad. It's I guess it's good. Yeah, it's good. We're 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 discovering things. Canadian astronomers found eight mysterious repeating fast radio bursts in outer space and now what basically happened was that everybody shit their pants in the media because they were like fast burst radio signals from outer space that means it's fucking aliens they're out there baby they're talking to no unfortunately that isn't the case when nine times out of ten i mean actually it's more like 100 percent of times out of ten when a scientist or scientists discover or, or or happen upon a radio signal in space. That radio signal is some kind of event occurring in the natural world in space. A hundred percent of the time. That's what it is. We've never received a radio signal from outer space that turned out to be extraterrestrial life. We have no proof of alien life. We haven't even found real like proof of life on Mars, like bacteria. We don't have any of that. You know, as far as we know, 100% of our knowledge declares that space is devoid of life, as far as we know right now. Personally, I think that's, that's not true. Space is enormous, and all of the building blocks for, you know, life as we know it exist in all of space. So I think it's out there. It's just uh, space is incredibly big. It would be very difficult for us to identify life you know, because of, of how quickly the speed of light moves and how far away everything is. You know, the closest planet is four, four light years away. That means at the speed of light, it would take you four years. I'm sorry, not planet. The closest star is Alpha Centauri. And Alpha Centauri is four light years away. So at the speed of light, it would take you four years to get there. Okay. And m- most of the planets that they've discovered that are capable of they will they exist in the habitable zone of their oh what would be the their their position in their solar system is in what we call the goldilocks zone and that is a zone that is it is just far enough or close enough to a star its star that the planet could sustain life in, under the right circumstances a lot of the closest ones are a lot farther away than 4 light years that we've discovered so <clears throat> 
you know, it's, it's, it's as big as space is. And as long as it's existed, the universe has existed for almost 14 billion years in that amount of time. It's entirely possible that life in the universe is already come and gone or as big as it is. It's just so far away. We can't see it. And we'll never know that we exist. There could be life teeming throughout the universe. And because it's all so far away and because light travels as, I mean, you know, comparatively slowly as it does in the vacuum of space, you know, 14 billion light years away right now, uh, you know, Ukatang is, is hanging out on planet Vupapop and they're fucking, they're chilling, watching Netflix, space Netflix. But we don't fucking know that and we'll never know that. Exactly. It's happening exactly at this moment right now, 13 billion light years away. We will never know. Because it'll take 13 billion fucking years for the light from that planet to get here. Do you understand? So, it, it, when we get radio burst information like this from space, um, we, even if it was fucking aliens, the odds are it was eons ago and they're already dead. But what it turned out to be for this radio fast burst was that it was neutron stars merging which causes the repeating explosions that result in this radio burst. And so it was mysterious to these Canadians because they don't know what type of neutron stars are colliding. But the media takes stuff like this and runs it as, we discovered radio bursts in space. And that's all they say. And that's the headline. And so then everybody's like, holy shit, radio in space? That's got, oh, no. No, 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 no. Now, the general public should be informed. They should include in that some, you know, thing that says like, by the way, Radio bursts happen in space all the fucking time. They don't have anything to do with aliens. But they do have a lot to do with things like pulsars and neutron stars and, you know, lots of shit. So that was the case. The Canadians found these eight radio burst signals that were neutron stars colliding. Very interesting stuff, but unfortunately, no ET yet. No aliens, you know, with with, uh, space marines and the whole you know, like James Cameron thing just yet. No Independence Day just yet. No Luke Skywalker pod racing on Coruscant just yet, which is not something that ever happened in Star Wars. But anyway, that's your happy news for the month of August 2019. We had some good stories there. We've got legalization, or well, decriminalization of marijuana in New York. We've got Lady Gaga doing some sweet things. We've got um, fucking space shit. Ah, you go back and recap. I already forgot what I told you. <laughs> I'm too busy. I got too much shit on my plate right now. Uh, those are your happy news stories for the month of August. I hope you guys enjoyed them. Uh, if you have any, any specific genre of news you would like to hear about from me, John, on Pour Me Another, just, uh, you know, shoot me a thing on Facebook or Instagram. I know you're following me there, and if you aren't, you better be. All right, moving along to the next topic of the evening our aircraft of the month mm, that is so tasty by the way it is sunday sunday evening so i'm having sort of a uh a sunday fun day drinking and talking to you fine folks about a whole bunch of weird shit uh tomorrow i i gotta work again i'm gonna make the work before we do the aircraft of the month i'll tell you some some more things about my my life right now i started running again which if you've never been an avid runner, you should take it up at least once in your life. It's a, it's a very, it's a very good thing to do. I love running. Running makes me feel amazing. There are a few things in life that make me feel as good as running does. Lifting weights definitely makes me feel very good too, but 
I love to run. I started taking creatine again. If you've never taken creatine, that's another thing you should do. You should, everybody listening right fucking now should put down what they're doing and get your ass on Amazon and order some cheap creatine and start lifting weights and running. That's what you should do. That's what you should all fucking do right now. Get an app called Strong Lifts 5x5. Start lifting like that three times a week and then three times a week start running first thing in the morning. Take your creatine, take your multivitamin, eat your proteins. You know, the diet the thing is up to you, but that's what everybody should listening should do. Hydrate, hydrate, hydrate. Drink lots of water. Take a multivitamin. You know, take some magnesium and some fish oil. Bada bing, bada boom, baby. You're on your way to fucking success. I promise. I love, I love running. I love running. And it's a pain in the ass sometimes to do, but I do enjoy it. I love lifting. So that's, I, I got back into the fitness kick. I feel pretty good today. My head's much clearer when I'm on creatine. It has this, creatine isn't just a, a, a workout supplement. It is very safe, by the way. Creatine is probably the most researched and studied and understood supplement for people that like to be physically active in the history of supplements. It's very, it's 100% safe. It's not a steroid or anything weird like that. You should take it. Most people should take it. So it makes me feel a, a, a mental clarity that I don't get from many other things. And so I took some earlier today before I worked out. Now I feel nice and crisp, nice and clear for my listeners here. Pour me another a podcast about, you know, stuff. Okay. So yeah, uh, ran earlier, feeling energized, feeling good, love running. You should do it. Moving along. Aircraft of the month. As I mentioned before, the aircraft of the month is the Supermarine Spitfire. Ah, do you guys know what that is? For those of you that don't know what the Supermarine Spitfire is, well, I'm about to tell you. The Supermarine Spitfire is a British fighter from World War II. Okay, so earlier in a previous episode, we talked about the P-51 Mustang. I think that the P-51 Mustang is comparable in its identity to the British as the P-51 was for America. So during the war, and I might just cover all of them, you know, uh, but during the war, every military, every nation had a fighter of the big, of the big nations. They had, they probably each had one World War II fighter that was the most recognized, best known fighter of that nation during the war. The U.S. had the P-51. The Germans had the ME, oh fuck, what is it? ME-109, BF-109 Messerschmitt. Okay. The Russians, I think the Russians are a little bit more difficult. Maybe the IL-2 Sturmovic. Everybody in aviation knows what the IL-2 is, but in terms of fighters, you know, they didn't have a fighter that was so well known. Maybe the LAG LAG-5 or the Yakolev. I don't know. But, but the other nations, the big nations, like, you know, America had the P-51. Britain had the Spitfire. Okay. So the Spitfire is a single engine, single seat, monoplane. It's got one set of wings. It's got one engine with one propeller on the nose, and it had machine guns in the wings, and later on it had um, cannons in the nose, like the P-51. You're going to go, if you read about World War II fighters, if you learned about fighter aircraft during World War II, you're going to find that a lot of them, most of them had, almost all of them really, had machine guns in the wings. That's where they would mount their machine guns. And that was basically the primary offensive air-to-air weapon system of the day. Missiles, air-to-air missiles didn't become a thing until later on, the 50s. 
is really when air-to-air missiles uh, were developed. The primary means of destroying an enemy aircraft during World War I and World War II was with machine gun fire from internally mounted machine guns. And the British Spitfire was no different. It had machine guns. Now, what you'll also find, especially with military aircraft, but aircraft in general, is that initial iterations, the early versions of any given airplane, are going to, to sport, and in the military, weapon systems and equipment and, and propulsion systems, uh, you know, and, and information systems in the cockpit that are always, you know, pretty rudimentary, and then they get better over time. And so you'll have different versions, like the P-51 had the P-51A, the B, and then the 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 most iconic version of the P-51 that fought during World War II would be the P-51D Mustang. With the Spitfire, you had the Spitfire Mark I, Spitfire Mark II. The most iconic version of the Spitfire would have been the Spitfire Mark IX. Now, what was the Spitfire good at? The Spitfire was fast. It was a fast airplane. It was, it could turn, was the thing. It could, it could turn like a motherfucker. And so, with a very high turn rate, made it an excellent counter to the British, or I'm sorry, the German BF-109, ME-109, which is basically the same plane, Messerschmitt 109 fighter. The 109s were not as good at turning. They could climb like a rocket ship, but they were not as good at turning. Now, in the American military, most fighters carried machine guns. 50 caliber machine gun was the standard armament for most American fighters. The, the British and the Germans were a little more complex. They, they generally carried a mixture of light machine guns and cannons. And so that was basically what, what happened with the Spitfire. A lot of the times you would see, throughout the different versions, because there were many, the Spitfire set like the earliest ones would have like four little dinky uh, 303 caliber machine guns, which were not very good. They could, you know, with enough fire, you could, you could destroy uh, a Messerschmitt, but they really weren't that powerful. A 303 is a pretty small round and some of the later models, um, well, late early models of the Spitfire had more 303 machine guns. They they eventually started adding in cannons. And so a cannon on a World War II fighter would be a much larger caliber machine gun system that fired at a lower rate. And and the most common cannon of the war was 20 millimeter. So lots of lots of fighters, including American fighters, had 20 millimeter cannons, but the the Spitfire was most versions of the Spitfire had some number of 20 millimeter hispano cannons and so like the mark 9 i think the mark 9 had 450 cals that were lend leased from america and then two 20 millimeter cannons and that's a shitload of firepower like the american the american aircraft would carry 650 cals standard or you know the p-47 had 850 caliber machine guns four in each wing to put 450 cals and two 20 mils in the wings of a Spitfire. That's a lot of fucking firepower. And so when you're, when you're discharging your weapon at an enemy aircraft, uh, there's this thing called burst mass. One second burst mass. The one second burst mass determines how much weight of lead is being thrown into the sky 
to shoot down an enemy plane. And with, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, the 450 cals and 20 mils on a Mark 9, you're looking at a huge burst mass that could blow gigantic holes in all the parts of a Messerschmitt. And not just a Messerschmitt, but bombers, whatever airplane a Spitfire Mark 9 came across, they could probably, if they got guns on target, they could rip that fucking thing apart. So anyway, you know, the Spitfire, it, it was fast, it could turn, it had good firepower, some of the later models even better firepower. It was a very, very versatile fighter. It didn't have a ton of range because it didn't need to go very far. During the war, so let me give you a little history about what the Spitfire did during World War II. Why is it so famous? Why do so many people love the Spitfire? In the initial stages of the war, the Battle of Britain occurred in the skies over Germany and England. Germany, France, and England. The bat- they called it the Battle of Britain, but it was really being fought in a bunch of different places. But I guess really specifically the Battle of Britain did take place over Britain. Now, what was the Battle of Britain? It was an early, like in 1940, it was an early attempt by the Germans to bomb the British into submission. There were even talks of a German invasion of the, the, the British island. And the Germans would send bombers from their bases in Germany and France to bomb England, and they would concentrate on cities, but they would bomb the shit out of England, and England would send up squadrons of fighters to counter the bomber threat. And during this campaign, the British were very successful in repelling a lot of Nazi Germany's air force called the Luftwaffe. The Luftwaffe. Luftwaffe, I think is the the proper German pronunciation. So during the Battle of Britain, uh, which I think it took place in the last half or like the last third, where is it? It's, It's the dates in here in this article I'm looking at. July to October 1940. Uh, the Battle of Britain was raging between Germany and, and England. And there were a ton of British fighters. They were the Hurricane. The Hurricane made up the bulk of British fighters during the Battle of Britain. The Hurricane was an uglier, slower, slower turning, slower climbing, not as good in performance fighter. And it did the bulk of the fighting. But they lost a lot more Hurricanes than they lost Spitfires because a Spitfire was very good in performance. So much so that they were able to really fucking destroy the BF-109E would have been the sort of mainstay of the Messerschmitt fleet. But not only that, they were able to shoot down the Junkers and the Heinkel bombers that the, Brit- the Germans were sending across the channel to bomb England. So it was, you know, the, the, they had a, they, that would be, okay, so the rate at which your aircraft or personnel are being killed in combat is called your attrition rate. And so the attrition rate of Spitfires was, was much lower than Hurricanes. They had a much higher victory-to-loss ratio, which means they were shooting down more enemy airplanes than, than they, were, they were losing. And so uh, as a result of that, the, the Spitfire became known as one of the best fighters of the war. I mean, it was a real beast in a dogfight. But that's about, I mean, there were, there were a lot of different variants and, and different versions of the Spitfire that could do lots of different cool shit. But really, the primary function of the Spitfire throughout the war was an interceptor fighter. It was designed to shoot down other planes. It's really what it was meant to do. And, you know, you can say the same about planes like the, you know, North American P-51 or the uh, Republic P-47. But really, those planes also had multiple roles. They could bomb, they could 
uh, attack ground targets. You know, they can do lots of stuff like that. The Spitfire, not as much. The Spitfire was really more of an interceptor. So even the early models were pretty fast. Uh, I think, where's the specifications on this thing? I'll tell you how quick it can go. The specifications are always a little bit further down. Okay, so the... Let's see, they've got the specifications for the Spitfire Mark 5B, which is, is, pr is probably pretty in indicative of the performance. It's like a, that would probably be like the baseline performance. 370 miles per hour was the maximum speed, about 600 kilometers an hour, which is fast as fuck. In level flight, in a dive, they can go faster. The combat radius of the Mark 5B was 410 nautical miles. Service ceiling of 36,500 feet. So service ceiling is as, as high as it can go before it can't climb any higher. The oxygen has thinned out too much for the aircraft at that altitude. And uh, let's see. Do they have the burst mass on here? I wonder. Okay. Oh, I see. So, so even on this version, even, there were different versions of the Mark 5B. And it had a bunch of different, there were a bunch of different loadings for this thing. So, like, one version had eight 303 Browning machine guns. One version had the four 50 cals I was talking, I'm sorry, two 50 cals and two 20 millimeters. One version had four 303s and two 20 millimeters. So, different, you know, different versions had different loadings. But anyway, very fast, 370 miles an hour, had a combat radius of 410 miles, and that got better as time went on. There, okay, so I was saying the the spitfire had did have different roles there was uh, there was one version that was built for reconnaissance you could fly it real real high it had a much better engine in it you could fly it real high and you could take recon photos with it it wasn't armed reconnaissance aircraft generally don't have armament of any kind that way they can fly higher they can fly faster they use you know less fuel so the 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 spitfire variant that was a reconnaissance aircraft did not have armament now there there was a modification made to the spitfire later on they added a a different kind of engine to it called the rolls royce griffin i think initially what kind did it have did it have a packard the Packard engine, I think, was the Packard was the company that made the initial engine. Hold on, let me find it. I'm scrolling through. I'm, I'm just bouncing around in here in this article reading shit about Spitfire because I'm, I'm a disorganized pecker. Um, do, 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 do. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, the first, the initial engines were Rolls-Royce. There were some Packard engines, but there was this engine they installed later on. It was a V12. It was called the Griffin. And so the Griffin engine was probably, I think, the most powerful engine that the Spitfire ever had. And as a result of the, the Griffin engine, it went from 370 miles an hour to 400 miles an hour. And uh, it could climb to an altitude of 33,000 feet. Oh, so not as high. Couldn't fly as high. But it was faster. Interesting. I wonder what, what, what aerodynamic property of the engine made it faster, but could not fly as high. There was a version of the Spitfire called the Seafire. They tried to put it on the deck of an aircraft carrier and, and fly it that way. I don't think the Seafires saw a lot of combat. The Spitfire wasn't really designed for aircraft carrier operations, but it, it, was, it, was, it was capable. It just wasn't as amazing. Okay, now, the, the Spitfire did do something in 1943 that was fascinating. 
they started initiating these high-speed diving trials at Farnborough, which is a very famous uh, aerodrome in the UK. Aerodrome, airport, whatever. So the, the thing about airplanes traveling at the speed of sound, they found that when you would get to close to the speed of sound, your aircraft would start shaking violently. And you were trying, you were approaching what's known as the point of maximum uh, aerodynamic pressure. And so once you pass that, once you hit Mach 1 and pass that, everything smooths out. But you, you get real f- crazy vibrations as you approach the speed of sound. So with propeller-driven aircraft, I don't, I don't know that any propeller-driven aircraft ever broke the speed of sound, at least in, I know in, during that time frame. It didn't happen. But uh, they did build planes that could go close to it. And so there was a Spitfire Mark 11 was flown by a guy named, where is it? What's his name? Martindale. Squadron leader Anthony F. Martindale. He took up uh, a Spitfire Mark 11, and uh, I think that had the Griffin engine in it. He put it in a dive, and he hit Mach 0.92, which is an airspeed of 620 miles per hour in an airplane that had a propeller. That's fucking crazy that's crazy he almost broke the sound barrier in a propeller driven aircraft and what he did was he flew it up to an altitude of of, about very high i think it was forty thousand feet and uh he dove it from forty thousand feet at a 45 degree angle and hit mach 0.92 he blacked out when the aircraft pulled up he zoom climbed a zoom climb is when you dive real fast as fast as you can. And then once you hit a certain speed, you rotate the aircraft back into a climb. And you're using all of that kinetic energy you've loaded in the dive to zoom way back up. So he was in this Spitfire, and he dove from 40,000, 50,000 feet, somewhere in there, and hit 620 miles an hour, blacked out, pulled up. He, pulled, he blacked out when he pulled up. He hit 11 Gs. That's crazy. To put that into perspective, you probably max at around... I don't know. The, the, the tightest I've ever turned in a roller coaster put me at about 2.5, 2.5 Gs, 3 Gs, something like that. It's not that bad. And that's kind of crazy, right? You feel crazy in a roller coaster. 11 Gs. That means that he was turning so, he was turning up so hard. Ram, ram that stick back, yank. Pulled up so hard that the gravity, the force of gravity around him in that aircraft increased 11 times its normal rate. In most people, that would cause a blackout. Maybe even a heart attack. Something would burst. But this fucker flew all the way up to 40,000 feet in the Spitfire. What he noticed was that his prop was gone. It flew off. And his wings were now slightly swept back. (laughs) So obviously the Spitfire wasn't designed to go 620 miles an hour in any case. He actually glided it back to the airfield at Farnborough. And, uh, you know, he survived. So that that was, I think that that dive... Mach 0.92 was the fastest uh, World War II propeller-driven aircraft ever went. So that's one of the things that the Spitfire did. Very fast, obviously. Very well-armed. Excellent rate of turn. That was, that was the way that the, uh, the Spitfire got its advantage over enemy fighter aircraft, is it could out-turn them. It was really, really good at turn fighting. Now, I said that out loud, and you might be wondering, what is turn fighting? Explain that to me a little bit, John. Okay, I will. So there's, there's basically in, in dogfighting, 
uh, especially from that era, there are two schools of thought. There's energy fighting and turn fighting. An energy fighter is a fighter that can climb very high and has very good energy retention and will generally dive on an enemy target and then use its energy retention to speed away faster than the enemy aircraft can keep up. So you'll, you'll do what's called boom and zoom. You'll fly down at the enemy target, fire off some rounds, hopefully get a, a, a critical hit that destroys the aircraft, and then you'll fly away at speed so that... Oh, my, my computer just made a big loud noise. I'm going to mute that fucking thing real quick. Uh, it'll, you, you, you zoom away at speed faster than the enemy aircraft you're trying to kill or his buddies who might be in the area, any other enemy aircraft. You want to keep your energy up is a phrase that's commonly um, used during discussions about dogfighting with energy fighters, especially keep your energy up because you can't, you're, you know, you would keep your energy up in an energy fighter because that's your lifeblood. Energy is, what is it? Energy is life. Speed. Energy can also be translated into speed. Energy and speed are life. Altitude is life insurance. So the higher you are, the more you can dive, zoom, dive, zoom, and keep your energy up and maintain a tactical advantage over other enemy fighters. In a turn fight, energy is not as much of a consideration. It still is, but your real goal is to outturn the enemy fighter in whatever maneuver you can to achieve a guns-on advantage and fire into that enemy aircraft, thus destroying it. So naturally, if you think about it, if you're behind another airplane and that airplane enters a turn and it can turn tighter than you can, you're not going to be able to maintain your tactical guns on advantage. It's going to turn, it's going to outturn you and eventually he's going to end up behind you in a turn. Alternatively, if your aircraft can maintain a tighter turning radius than the aircraft you are attacking, as he turns, you're going to have the turn advantage and you're going to be able to maintain guns on target and kill that fucker. You're going to, and, and the way that they would do that, they had gun sights in the cockpit of these fighters, but a lot of the time you didn't even really see your, your target as much as you were in a turn. And so you knew that he was going to be flying into the round. So you would aim, you would point your plane in such an attitude that the guns rounds would fly into the enemy aircraft as he was turning. So you would, you know, imagine you're, you're rolled on your side, right? You're, you're turning on your side. I'm doing this with my fucking hands as I'm describing it to you. You're on your side rolling in a turn, and, and you're, you can't see exactly where those rounds are going to end up in relation to the enemy aircraft because of your nose. And so you're firing, 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 trying to get the advantage. Now, there were fighters that didn't have propellers on the nose during World War II, like the P-38. It had two engines on the wings and and the the pod that the cockpit existed inside of was small and they had a much better you know ability to see where their rounds were going to go also if you know some pilots would keep their cockpits open so they could lean their head out and look and see where the guns were going another thing that that fighters had during world war ii that gave them the ability to engage enemy aircraft was they would put tracers in their machine guns you know what a tracer is for those of you that don't, a tracer is a round fired by a gun that has been coated in some chemical compound that ignites and burns as the round spins through the air. 
Okay, so every nation has a different color. American tracers are red. German tracers were like white and green. British tracers were green. Okay, and you would you could use those tracers. I think it was like in American. I know in American belts, it's one every five rounds. So every five rounds you would see a tracer, but that, that those, they fire so fast. It looks, you know, you can, you, you see a lot of tracers. So you use the tracers to aim where your rounds are going. And with, uh, you know, enemy or dog fighting and enemy aircraft, those tracers made it much easier for pilots to get their rounds on target. Now, a lot of the gun camera footage you'll see from world war two where, and you know, people are dog fighting. You'll see the turns weren't that extreme because people couldn't take that many G forces, right? They didn't have G-suits back then. They might have had them later on. But, you know, you, you, as if you're in a turn fight, the thing about being in a turn fight is you're, 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 you're loading up your body with all of these Gs. And so you're exhausting yourself. You know, a really good pilot can only sustain a turn fight for a, a few minutes at most, a couple maybe, before they're exhausted to the point where they can't keep turning. You know, so that was another way that you could gain the advantage. You had to be in really good shape. How, how do you, how, how would a pilot make himself better at turn fighting? You would be in really good shape. You wouldn't drink that much. You wouldn't smoke that much. You would run. You'd keep your body nice and nice and athletic. turns out smaller people are better at withstanding more G forces. So like shorter guys, like five foot six, five foot seven, those guys make really good fighter pilots. Women make really good fighter pilots because their bodies can sustain more G's. They're naturally more curvy. So it, I think that I don't want to get, I don't actually, you know what? I don't know really the science behind it. I just know that they can withstand more G's than men, generally speaking. But so, yeah, you know, you, if you had uh, a more athletic physique, you would be more inclined to withstand higher G loads for longer periods of time. And in a fighter that was a turn fighter, like the Spitfire, that was extremely important. The, the Messerschmitt, the ME 109, BF 109, would have been considered more of an energy fighter and as such wouldn't have been good for turns although some stupid german pilots would try and turn fight spitfires and they'd get their shit wrecked and that was the outcome of that so the spitfire i've told you a lot about the spitfire very very good very very capable fighter turn fighter you know very fast great turn fighter wasn't as good an energy fighter but uh it, it, it excelled. Later models definitely were. You could definitely energy fight in a Spitfire later on. They, they could climb like a demon. But anyway, outstanding World War II fighter from Britain. The Spitfire and its, its cousin, the Hurricane, they were so effective at shooting down German fighters, they won the Battle of Britain. They were part of the victory in the Battle of Britain where the British successfully staved off German fighters <clears throat> and German bombers uh, to a degree that it was considered to be the one of the most decisive and, and greatest military victories in aerial combat history. Winston Churchill was quoted as saying, never have so many owed so much to so few. He was talking about the fighter pilots who defended Britain in hurricanes and more specifically Spitfires from German attack. So the Spitfire, uh, Britain's most iconic fighter of World War II, best known British fighter aircraft of World War II, outstanding performance, land speed, or I'm sorry, airspeed records broken for the time, you know, lots of victories in combat, outstanding aircraft. If you want to know what it looks like, just Google Spitfire, 
Spitfire MKXI or IX or X doesn't matter. There's there's lots of mark. The British when they when they like in in America when we create a different version of a plane, we usually give it a letter like the F18A, the F18B, the F18C. In England, they're Mark MK, British Mark V, British Mark VI, or, you know, Spitfire Mark V, Spitfire Mark IX. So, and, uh, oh, yeah, the, the, the Mark is followed by Roman numerals. Spitfire MKIX is the Spitfire Mark IX. Okay, so there's your aircraft of the month, Spitfire. Give it a look. Great plane. I have a poster of two Spitfires above my bed. I've had it for years. It's a cool poster. All right. So that's, that's it for the aircraft of the month. Now I did say that I wanted to talk about aviation and uh, that's what I'm gonna do. I want to talk about how aviation in the United States works. I just want to give you guys a general understanding of how airspace and airports work in America and what my job was and how that fits into the aviation system in the United States. Okay. So I was an airport manager. An airport manager runs an airport. There are lots of airports in America. Some of them are big. Some of them are very small. All of them exist as part of the civil aviation system in the United States. Now, military aviation is completely separate from all of that and is uh, governed by, I mean, they do follow the rules of the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, but they also reside under, you know, the Department of Defense. So that's totally different. But in civilian aviation, civil aviation, there are generally two branches. There is, there are two branches of civil aviation. There is general aviation and scheduled air transport, air carriers, scheduled air carriers. I worked in general aviation. General aviation refers to aircraft that are small, generally privately owned or owned by businesses. General aviation involves, you know, like Cessnas and uh, Citation jets, little jet, little business jets, and little small helicopters for people to put around in. General aviation is like a charter flight, um, you know, owned by a single person would be general aviation. A helicopter patrolling uh, pipeline would be considered general aviation. A Cessna 172 carrying Bob and his family from... Uh, Pawtucket to fucking <laughs> Greensboro would be considered general aviation. Scheduled air transport is a completely different thing. Scheduled air transport refers to commercial aviation is what you guys would call it. And also cargo operations. Most scheduled, or I'm sorry, most airline traffic in the world is scheduled. That means that you, that's why you can go and order a flight six months in advance, it's because that flight has already been booked or scheduled by the air carrier. And it might be a different plane, it might be a different crew, but that flight always goes on time. The three, the, you know, the eight o'clock from Nashville to London is a British Airways scheduled airline flight that occurs on time once a week. The Nashville I think it's a triple seven every time too. But anyway, you will always find the same flights on the same days every year. And they, I mean, they do change, but largely they, you know, they're scheduled, they're out there, they're always happening. And that is a, that had, that, that has a completely different set of rules 
than general aviation. General aviation exists in a, in a totally different world than commercial aviation does. I mean, they both fly in American, the, the American NAS, the National Airspace System, but they both have a huge different set of rules. Okay, and so the, the governing body of aviation in the United States is the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration. The Federal Aviation Administration has a, a book. It's their Bible for all the laws and regulations that they create for aviation. It's called the FAR AIM, Federal Aviation Regulations, and then AIM stands for the, I think it's the Airman's Information Manual. But the FARs, or what we call them, the Federal Aviation Regulations, are what decide how aviation is supposed to work. And brother, there are, sister, there are fucking thousands on thousands of FARs. And in the FARs, there are parts. So like FAR part 135, I believe that is charter flights part one. Oh, no. I'm Googling it. Part 135 operate aviation. What is part 135? Part 135 is operations of business aircraft that wish to conduct operations for compensation or hire are generally certificated under part 135. So that is a part of the Federal Aviation Regulation Book, this is so fucking boring to learn too, Jesus Christ, you wouldn't believe, that regulates that, you know, compensation for higher flying, okay? And there are, there are parts for fucking everything. There's part 91, there's part 141, there's part, blah, blah, blah. they go on and on and on. And so there's all these different fucking rules and they get super specific. I mean, so crazy. When you get into like the, the maintenance and the airworthiness shit, it gets so technically specific and you just bet you have to, you have to know that stuff too. You know, a lot of, well, pilots, not as much, but you know, if you have a really specific job, like you're a flight dispatcher, or maybe you're a fucking, um, a mechanic on, you know, uh, MD 500s, which is a helicopter, you need to know all of the FAA parts and regulations that pertain to that specific aircraft. Okay. Scheduled air carrier traffic is part, what is, scheduled, yeah, I'm typing, listen to me, bitch. Scheduled air carrier part 121. So scheduled air carriers are part 121 in the FAR, the FAR, the, the F, the Federal Aviation Regulations. And then part 91 is, is general aviation. That's general operating and flight rules. Okay, so you get the idea. Uh, let's see. Part 25 is rules governing airworthiness standards. Part 61 is outlines requirements for getting licenses. So that's your licensing process. Uh, part 133 is rules governing external load operations for helicopters. You get it? There's a fucking shitload of these things, and they go on and on and on and on. So let me talk about general aviation for a minute, because that's where I worked. I worked in general aviation at this airport. There are thousands of airports in the United States. Let's find out the exact number. How many airports in the U.S.? Well, Google will tell us. There are 19,000, over 19,700 airports in the continental or in the entire United States. 5,170 of these airports are open to the general public. Okay. 503 of them serve commercial flights. That's how many airports there are. There's almost 20,000 airports. A lot of them are private. A lot of them are military. 5,170 are open to the general public and 503 of them 
have commercial flights. So that gives you an idea how many airplanes there are, or I'm sorry, airports there are in the country. That's I mean, it shouldn't give you an idea. That's exactly like I think in, in Virginia, there are 60 public airports. Okay. And most of them, the vast majority of these 5,170 public airports are very small. They mostly probably only have one runway. That runway is probably 5,000 feet or less. And they serve as people that own little Cessnas, that own helicopters, and they putter in and they putter out and they sell fuel, you know, and they might have like one or two full-time employees and they just, you know, they take care of small airplanes and small aviation operations in America. That's a general aviation airport. That airport won't have scheduled air traffic, scheduled air carriers. Now, will they have air traffic control? That's a question that I get a lot. Air traffic control has one job, one primary job, to maintain separation of aircraft. Okay, That's what an air traffic controller does. His primary job is to maintain separation of aircraft. He also issues all of the commands and tells airplanes how to get in and out of airports and that's that's an air traffic controller's job smaller airports will not have air traffic controllers as much some do most probably don't the reason that is is because not every airplane in the american airspace system is talking to an air traffic controller and that really depends on the weather so there's two types of flying in america there's ifr and there's VFR, okay? We'll start with VFR. VFR is what the majority of general aviation operations exist in. VFR stands for Visual Flight Rules. To put this pretty simply, it's basically like flying as if you're driving your fucking car, okay? And the only time that you are able to fly in VFR is if the weather conditions meet the requirements for VFR. VFR means you are flying your airplane with visual reference to the ground. Okay, so you, you're seeing outside of the plane. That is, that is how most general aviation flights exist. Like, you know, Bob, remember I told you about Bob who was flying from fucking Punxsutawney down to Greensboro, where was it, Pawtucket? He's probably flying VFR. VFR conditions, what are VFR conditions? So there's a standard VFR condition. I think it's 3152, right? Three mile visibility. And then one, what is, hang on a minute. I got to Google it. Standard VFR condition. Standard VFR minimums are, okay. At least 1,000 feet and three statute miles of visibility. One, five, two. Do, 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 do. See, here I am. I, I fucking don't do this shit enough. VFR weather minimums. Okay. It's different for airspace. Okay. And we're going to get into airspace here in a minute. But basically the idea is in class G airspace, which is general aviation airspace, that's like reserved for general aviation or it's where they they can do whatever they want. Three statute miles visibility. You got to have 500 feet of clearance above you, a thousand feet below you and 2000 feet horizontally. If you can see three statute miles, which isn't that far, honestly, that's not that far. When you're in a plane and visibility is three miles, you're like, fuck. That's, that shit's getting pretty low. If, but if those conditions exist, it can be at day or at night, you are allowed to fly in VFR conditions. And so private pilots, a person who only has their private pilot's license, will normally be flying in VFR conditions. And so 
you know, that's, that's like, you have to get additional certifications to fly instrument. But up until that point, if you're a private pilot with all the, you know, privileges of a private pilot and you have an airplane that is airworthy for VFR flight, any time of day where visibility is beyond three, three miles and you have those clearances of clouds, you are able to go up and fly. And, and the, you won't talk to ATC. There's no talking to fucking air, air traffic control. This is how it literally worked. Let's say it's a VFR day and Bob has a Cessna at Twin County Airport. Bob wants to go to that airport and get in his Cessna and take off. He'll drive to the airport. He'll check the weather. He'll look at the weather reports. The weather says, you're good. It's VFR. You got 10 miles visibility. It's four o'clock in the afternoon. There's no clouds. You can go fly VFR. He's like, cool. So he goes, he, he, he pre-flights his airplane. He gets it out of the hangar. He checks it, makes sure it's good to go, cranks up the engine. And then this is where things get a little bit hectic for most laymen to understand. He has to communicate with that airport or at least the people at the airport flying around. Okay. So every general aviation airport, like the one that I worked at, has what's called a common traffic advisory frequency or UNICOM. Universal communications frequency, the same thing. CTAF, Unicom, same thing. And that is like like 121.8. I think that's ultra high, UHF. Anyway, 121.8 might be the frequency or 119.5, whatever. You turn to that frequency in your airplane on your radio and you can hear everyone in that airspace should be announcing their position, okay? That's how general aviation pilots that aren't talking to ATC know what's going on at that airport. So it would go kind of like this. Bob gets in his airplane, he pre-flights it, he's ready to go. He checks his radios, he checks his engines, he does some ramp-ups, he gets his, you know, he, he, he gets the thing ready to go. When he's ready to taxi, which is how an airplane gets from a hangar to a runway, you taxi is what that's called. When he's ready to taxi from the hangar to the runway, he will make a radio call. And it might go something like this. I trained in Murfreesboro. That's where I got my pilot's license. So this is how I would say it. Murfreesboro traffic. Diamond 586 Mike Tango is on the ramp at Murfreesboro, taxiing runway 19. And so that means he's everybody knows where he's going and what he's doing. He's taxiing to the runway. I'm sorry, at, at Murfreesboro, it would have been 18. And so in general aviation, you begin that radio call and you end it with your location. Murfreesboro traffic. Diamond 586 Mike Tango is on the ramp, tra- taxiing to runway 18, Murfreesboro. And now everybody at Murfreesboro or in the surrounding area that might be listening to that frequency knows that that airplane is going from the ramp to the runway. You get to the runway, you make another radio call. Murfreesboro traffic, 586 Mike Tango is uh, on departure end, runway 18, taking off, Murfreesboro. And everybody knows what that means. He's getting ready to take off. Then you take off and you fly what's called a pattern. There's this pattern that exists around, and you would make radio calls about the pattern. Murfreesboro traffic, 586 Mike Tango's turning left downwind, 18 Murfreesboro. Everybody knows what's going on, and other pilots will talk to each other. Uh, Roger that, 586 Mike Tango, 5-2 uh, Mike Tango has, your, has traffic in sight. Roger that. And that's the way that goes. People talk to each other on the radio frequency, and there's a standard language to do that. You might notice everything I said kind of sounded the same. It will. That's how aviation works. It used to not be like that. People would just yell at the radio. Hey, Murfreesboro traffic, this is 582. I'm coming in. I'm about four miles away. Uh, I'm going to be in there in about three minutes, y'all. So, you know, keep a fucking eye out. That was back in the days when planes were falling out of the fucking sky. Since then, you know, aviation has become much more standardized. It's a very standardized system now. So radio calls, positioning, maneuvers, all that shit. Everything is, is 
is there's a standard way to do just about everything. And radio calls in a general aviation VFR environment are no different. Okay. So that's, that's basically how that works. If you're, let's say you're flying into an airport, you would key in that airport's radio station. If you know, and, and you're in VFR conditions flying around, you, you know, v, if VFR conditions prevail across the Western half of the United States, you can fly across the Western half of the United States in VFR. As long as you have those conditions in, in the airspace that you would be in, because they're different per every different kind of airspace. And I'll tell you what those are here in a few minutes. But so, yeah, you know, like, let's say, let's say Bob goes from Greensboro to Albuquerque in his Cessna. He's going to have to make a few stops along the way because they don't have that much range. But during that flight, if VFR prevails all the way out on that 11 or 12 or 15 hour flight, however long it is, you can fly VFR. You don't need to file a flight plan and talk to an air traffic controller. And you would just make radio calls. And if you flew through an airport's airspace, you would make radio calls to that airport. Sometimes, if you know, if, if and, and let's say that Bob is, is flying along and he wants to stop at, at, at Puxitani. <laughs> That's, you know, way out of the way of Albuquerque. Let's say Pux, he's flying into fucking Puxitani and he wants to stop. First, he'll make a radio call. Puxitani Airport. Uh, this is Bob in Cessna November 582 Mike Tango. I am at 8,000 feet. Uh, 10 nautical miles southwest of the field, maneuvering for a three-mile 45 runway, one nine uh, fucking Puxitani. And that's the end of his radio call. He has told everybody where he is, what he's doing, and, and how he's going to get there, and what he's going to do. And then the radio calls will continue until he's on the ground and his fucking engine is off. That's the right thing to do anyway. The crazy thing about general aviation FARs is a lot of them are really just recommendations. You don't have to do that. You don't have to have a radio to fly into general aviation airspace in VFR conditions. A lot of planes don't. They'll just keep their eyes out. Remember when I said what a, an air traffic controller's primary job is? Separation of aircraft, right? Maintaining separation of aircraft. In the VFR environment, general aviation pilots, their job is to do what's called see and avoid. It is the job of the pilot in the general aviation airplane, in VFR space, to maintain the separation of aircraft that that air traffic controller would be doing for him if he were IFR, if he were on an instrument flight plan. Otherwise, when you're in VFR, it's the pilot's jobs to maintain separation of aircraft. And they do that, as I said, with a system known as see and avoid. Basically, that means look your fucking ass outside and find the other airplanes. Listening to the radios makes that easier. Because you know where to look. You're flying around. A, 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 a decent pilot will hear, I'm on a three mile 45 runway, one eight, whatever. And he knows where to look in relation to his plane and say, okay, I got you in sight. It's actually, it becomes pretty intuitive once you're up there. But the VFR pilot's job is to maintain separation of aircraft. It doesn't always work. Very unfortunately, someone that I cared about a lot, who was a pilot, was killed in the VFR environment by a pilot who didn't properly see and avoid and was listening to the wrong radio frequency. And so on final approach, his airplane collided with hers. Everybody on board, two people in her plane and one in his were killed. That happens actually pretty commonly. Most aircraft collisions, they're rare, but when they do happen, they mostly happen inside the airport environment. Okay, so that's general aviation. That's VFR. Imagine Bob, you know, going to Puxitani or, or maybe like uh, Sheets has a jet, they want to fly from fucking, you know, one place to another to check that place out. If they're in VFR conditions, they don't really need to get on a flight plan. General aviation thinks smaller airplanes. Most of those little airports are like, you know, fun stops. They can also, you know, they, they can also be purposeful stops. 
a lot of them they sell fuel, so they'll they'll serve as get sort of like gas stations for the sky for smaller aircraft. But yeah, that's that's VFR and general aviation, and that's basically what it was like for me. My job as airport manager was to run one of these smaller airports. And I wasn't in charge of telling anybody what to do because, like I said, they're all talking to each other on the Unicom frequency. My job was to maintain the field. I did the accounting. I kept the books. I did the safety inspections of the facility. I interacted with the government for grants and, um, you know, maintenance projects and, uh, capital improvement projects. And I interacted with the public and taught, taught classes with children about aviation. And, uh, you know, I might refuel planes every now and then I would, uh, write all the checks. I'd do all the banking. I think I already said that the accounting, the administration, I'd take care of the audit. I would make sure that we were, um, meeting the standards for government agencies like the Virginia department of environmental quality. I, I was, solely focused on the airport, the business the airport had, and then the conditions of the airport. The uh, you know operations that were taking place there were out of my hands, but I also did a lot of things that ensured the safety, like maintain light bulbs, uh, maintain you know wind socks, that kind of thing. So I was basically the man in charge. And uh, yeah, I was, I was actually pretty good at my job. I, I didn't have a lot of complaints except for my boss, who was a total fucking dick. So anyway, yeah, that's general aviation. Now, commercial aviation is totally different. Big airports, long runways, accommodating lots of jet operations every day. You know, like the busiest airport in the country is Atlanta, Hartsfield, Jackson. They got like four runways and they're constantly pushing, you know, airplanes in and out. And they, you know, like a 747 holds at at max capacity. It's like, uh, it's a million pound airplane. You know, so it's, it, it uses an enormous amount of fuel, tons and tons of fuel. So they, they have these huge fuel systems that sell enormous quantities of fuel. You've got scheduled air traffic coming and going. You fucking know. You've been there. You've been to one of those airports. You know, every, you know, you've been on a commercial flight. You know how crazy it is, how busy it is, all the jets coming and going. Well, how does that work? So let's go back. I was talking about airspace. In the American airspace system, there are different kinds of airspace. Down at the surface, we call the the the, the surface is the, the ground. <laughs> Down around the surface, it's mostly either class G or class E. Okay, class G and class E are kind of like free use airspace. They're for anybody to travel through as long as you're doing what you need to do. Um, you know, there's not a lot of regulation in class E and class G, and the regulation that does exist, you can find in the far aim. But so class G and class E, they're similar in a lot of ways. They have some differences. I don't want to get into it. That's too fucking technical. But imagine class G and class E, like class G exists from the surface to 1,200 feet. Class E airspace exists from the surface to 10,000 feet or 700 and up. It, it depends. It changes. It's all different. Okay. But, but just imagine class G and class E is, is that lower stuff that exists, um, you know, uh, down low. Okay. So... Class D is the next one I want to talk about. Class D is airspace above an airport. Now, this is where I think, all right, so Class B, Class C, and Class D all refer to airports. If you're in Class C airspace, you're above a Class C airport. If you're in Class B airspace, you're in you're above a class B airport. If you're in class D airspace, you are above a class D airport. 
B, C, D. And what's interesting is that they, they get smaller in size. B is huge. Big, busy airport like Atlanta. Class C is going to be middle-sized like fucking Roanoke. And then Class D is going to be something real small, like a, an airport that is big enough that it requires its own airspace and it has an air traffic, it might have an air traffic tower, but it's not big enough that it, it, there's air carriers coming and going. It's Class D airport, like Winston-Salem is a Class D airport, I think. They're usually, most of the ones I've seen are like old military fields that were decommed and, and turned into civilian. But anyway, you have to get permission to go into Class B, Class C, or Class D airspace from the controlling authority. Okay? So check this out. This is where it starts to get really crazy. Most airplanes flying in and out of Class B, Class C, and even Class D are going to be on an instrument flight plan. Now remember I said there are two types of flight, VFR and IFR. IFR is instrument flight rules. Totally different. You are not looking out your airplane. You are flying by sole reference to the instruments in your aircraft, okay? Altimeter, airspeed indicator, attitude indicator, uh, climb indicator, rate of, uh, what's your climb rate? Fuck, I can't remember the exact name. Uh, magnetic compass. You know what I mean? Like, you're using your instruments to understand your, 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 your position in space, your airspeed, how fast you're going, how high you are, what your attitude is, are you diving, are you climbing, are you turning? Turn coordinator, that's the other one. Uh, you can only fly IFR on an instrument flight plan. That's where air traffic control comes in. And how does that work? Totally different process from Bob flying from fucking Puxitani to Albuquerque. Bob is a business jet pilot. And Bob wants to fly from New York to Chicago. Okay. The weather is garbage all the way out. The ceiling which is the lowest level of clouds, the ceiling is at 700 feet off the deck. So it's low as shit. You know, that's not VFR. You are below VFR minimums. He's got to fly in this garbage, but his aircraft, good thing, because he's a professional aviator, his aircraft is equipped with, it is instrument rated, and he has an instrument rating. But not only that, he's a commercial pilot, so he'd have that anyway. But so how that works is, Bob sits down, and creates an instrument flight plan for his jet. I want to go from New York to Chicago. I want to fly at 25,000 feet. I want to go direct. He files that with the FAA. He gives them an estimated time of departure. He gets in his airplane, he pre-flights it, blah, 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 fuels up, gets ready. And then when it's time for him to go, if he's at a general aviation airport, he'll make the radio calls as necessary until he can call you can do it two different ways. If you're at a general aviation airport and they don't have a tower, you'll actually have to pick your phone up and call a number and be like, Hey, I'm on the ground at, you know, Murfreesboro. I have the, I have all the information. Uh, I'm ready to depart on my instrument flight plan. And then they will clear you on the ground and say, all right, uh, you are cleared for departure from Murfreesboro. Uh, con on departure, contact Nashville five, two, five, you know, and then they give you a series of instructions. If you're at an airport with a tower, you would just say, tower, this is uh, like Nashville, let's say. Or, you're, no, you're at New York. So let's say you're at JFK, JFK Tower. Uh, Bob, this is Bob. Okay, let me slow down. I'm, I'm going too fast and I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. And I'm probably, th I know I'm throwing a shitload of information at you, but I'm hoping that my description of this is giving you like a general idea of, of how it can be really simple 
or it can be really fucking complex. When you get to IFR, it gets really complex. But you would say, Bob would say, uh, JFK Tower. This is, uh, you know, citation 525, Mike Tango. I'm on the ground with the numbers, ready to depart. And then they would tell him what to do. Taxi to runway one five hold short. And so then you would taxi, and then they would hand you off to Tower. That ground control would taxi you. Tower, you would, they would hand you off to Tower, and you would contact Tower on their frequency and say, hey, Tower, I'm ready to depart. Tower would say, you're clear to go. And you would say, roger that. Every time they give you instructions, you got to repeat it back. Anyway, let me try and shorten this. There's, a, there's, there's ground control, then there's tower, then there's departure, and then there's en route, and then there's arrival. There's, uh, let's see, approach. It would be approach. It would be, okay, so there's different air traffic controllers. They all have a different job. And you would transition from one controller to the next depending on where you are in your flight. So when you're on the ground, if you're in a jet, and you're on the ground, and you're at an airport, and you're ready to taxi, you would say, ground control, I'm ready to taxi. Ground control would say, go ahead and taxi over here. So then you would do that. They'd say, contact tower. You would contact tower. You'd say, tower, I'm ready to fly away. Tower would say, roger that, cleared for takeoff. You would take off. They would say, contact departure control. On takeoff, you would contact departure control. Departure control, I'm flying out. Departure control would tell you what to do. And then they would hand you off to center. That's what it is. Center like Atlanta Center, Nashville Center. Those are the guys that are doing the in-route traffic. The centers, and there's ARTCC, Air Route Traffic Control Centers, they are, they are controlling dudes in-route across the United States. Center, when you get too close to your destination, center would hand you off to approach. So you would contact Nashville Approach. Like, or if you're going into Chicago, you would say Chicago Approach, and, and, and you would contact them. They would give you instructions. And then once you landed, or once you're ready to land, you would contact Tower, and Tower would say, you're clear to land. Once you're on the ground, Tower would hand you off to ground control, and then you would taxi in according to their instructions. The entire time, you're doing all of this crazy shit. You are listening to instructions from an air traffic controller. In a single flight, you might talk to 12 different controllers. On a really long flight, you might talk to fucking 20, 30. It depends on your flight. Now. To get in and out of the sky. Taking off is easy. Departures, there are departures, and and you know, they might tell you to fly a departure. Most of the time they might just give you, you know, instructions. But there are these sky maps, they're maps of the sky that tell pilots how to fly either into or out of an airport in weather conditions that they can't see shit, right? When you're flying away, it's called a departure, a standard departure. When you're flying in somewhere, you're gonna fly an approach. Okay, so the, the approaches, they are on paper. And now most of these things, departures and, and approaches, are in iPads. They have these electronic flight books now. Used to be a pilot would carry around this big box, commercial pilot, like if you're flying for Pan Am or something. You would carry around a big old box and it'd be full of paper and books. And in these books are these things called approaches. And there's approaches for every airport in the country that you might fly into. And then you would look at the approach and it tells you exactly how to go from one place down to the ground and land at the airport, okay? And they're very complicated, and there's lots of instructions, and there's lots of different kinds of approaches. The most common approach today is probably the GPS approach. Everything has gone to GPS. But back in the day, there used to be all kinds of alphabet soup approaches. There was NDB, there was DME, there was VOR. It just went on and on and on. And there, that, those were all different ways for pilots to go from, like, say, flying at 
20,000 feet in route. And the, you know, fucking the approach controller would say, they would tell Bob, Bob, you're, you're fucking, you're shooting the VO, you're flying the VOR approach into Chicago. Or alternatively, most, well, back in the day, most common was ILS, instrument landing system. And so instrument landing system was a way, that was a bunch of different, you know, things that, that meshed together to make uh, a, a pretty precise approach for a pilot who couldn't see. And that's the whole purpose of what you're doing. You're, 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 you're trying to fly in conditions where you can't see, you can't see the airport. You know, when you're at 10,000 feet and you start the approach, you can't see anything. All you see is white, but you're not looking at the fucking white. You're looking at your instruments and you're following the instructions of the air traffic controller. Okay. And so you fly your approach and what should happen if the weather conditions are right, you will break out of the clouds and see the airport. You're like, oh shit, I got the airport. I have the airport in sight. I am ready to land. And then you land. If you, if you go down to a low enough altitude and you haven't broken out of the clouds, you do what's called a mist approach. And then, you know, you might have to go to another airport or wait, wait around, enter a holding pattern and wait for the ceiling to come up. So it gets crazy. But anyway, the whole time you're on an instrument flight plan flying in IFR conditions, you are talking to an air traffic controller doing what he says and you got to, I mean, you are fucking, if you don't do what he says, you could die. Okay. And you have to stay within a certain amount. Like, I think it's like a hundred feet of the altitude he gives you and like five knots of the airspeed he gives you. So if you're flying along in a, a fucking Boeing 737 and ATC says, uh, you know, climb and maintain 30,000 feet, turn left heading 270. The Boeing 737 pilot is going to set the autopilot to do that for him. He's going to set you know, he's going to press vertical or whatever, and he's going to set the fucking altitude, and then he's going to set the fucking heading, and the airplane is going to do all that for him. Honest to God, most commercial flights these days, the pilot doesn't do a whole lot. He fucking, he taxis it, he gets it in the air, and then once they're like a thousand feet off the ground, the dude hits the fucking autopilot and just does, like, you know, tells it what to do with the autopilot. And, and the autopilot can fly that plane so much better than that fucking pilot ever could hope for, right? And, you know, the instructions are basically pretty simple. Uh, air traffic control will say, like, like when you're getting handed off to departure controller, he might not make you do a, a standard departure. He, he might just give you instructions. He would say, like, uh, Southwest 214, climb and maintain 35,000, turn left heading 270. And that's it. And then you, re- you would repeat that back to him. Uh, climb and maintain 35,000, turn left uh, heading 270, uh, Southwest 214. And then you would just do what he says. And they will issue a bunch of instructions along the way. And when you get handed, I, one of my favorite things about flying instrument was when they would hand you off. Cause that's what it's called the handoff. So like you're, you've taken off tower will hand you off. They'll say contact departure control one, two, 1.5. And then everybody says good day. <laughs> I, I said good day a thousand. I loved saying good day contact departure control one, two, 1.5. Good day. And then you would say, uh, departure control one, two, 1.5. Good day. Southwest 141. And that's it. Uh, it's, it's, it's complex. I know I've thrown an enormous amount of information at you. I just want to like to make it, to wrap all that up. VFR is very simple. IFR is much more complex, but IFR makes you a better pilot. Being able to fly IFR, being able to fly on an instrument flight plan also gives you the ability to fly in lots of shitty weather. Okay. And you wouldn't fly into a thunderstorm. Nobody flies into thunderstorms, not even the big guys. That's how people die. You wouldn't fly into a tornado or a hurricane. But the thing is, what m- m- you don't want to fly into icing either. Ice will kill you, you know, if you don't have de-icing equipment. So weather is a big concern. And when you're on an IFR flight plan, obviously you're going to be flying into shit weather. 
most of the time it's just going to be lots of clouds and rain. You can totally fly into clouds and rain as long as it's not a thunderstorm. You can totally fly into icing conditions if you have an airplane that can heat up its wings or maybe has those rubber boots that blow the ice off. You have to have de-icing. A Cessna would not want to fly into conditions that have ice. Okay, but I was talking about airspace. Okay, airspace is different per the size of the airport, right? A class B is enormous. A class C is medium size and class Ds are smaller. A class G, a general aviation airport is nothing. It's so small they don't even have air traffic controllers. Okay, to get into a class B, you would have to call up the uh, air traffic controller there and you have to have a certain kind of equipment available and you would ask permission. And then once they give you permission, you can enter with class C and class D when you call them up, once they acknowledge you, then you can enter. So it's, it's complicated, but airspace in the United States class, you have to have permission to enter class B, C, or D class E and class G. You don't have to have that now class a airspace. It has its own rules. Class a airspace is everything in the sky above the United States, 17,999 feet and up. So basically 18 grand and above, you're in class A airspace. You cannot fly in class A airspace. You cannot fly above 18,000 feet in the United States unless you're on an instrument flight plan. You have to be talking to air traffic control to fly above 18,000 feet in the United States. Why is that? At 18,000 feet, most of the aircraft you're going to be encountering are going to have much higher power engines usually a lot of turboprops and jets or airplanes with turbos or superchargers on their engine. If they're, if they're just like a little piston prop, those aircraft are going to be moving faster. They're going to be harder to see because you're way up there. You're way up high. It, it just necessitates control by air traffic control. And so, like I said, their primary job is to maintain separation of aircraft. So when you're up in a commercial airliner, Every single time your pilot is talking to ATC, he's being controlled by people on the ground with radar. And let me explain something about radar. Okay. When you're in an airplane in the United States, the radar doesn't see you. I mean, it does. It's sending up uh, a traditional radar signature to, you know, bounce radio signals off of metal things in the sky. And then the radio, you know, the, the, the radar will pick it up. But what's really happening for most airplanes is they have what's called a transponder. That transponder sends out a signal that the radar for ATC sees, and it tells all the information about the plane. So when you turn your transponder on, um, and actually what happens is uh, the air traffic controller, when you're on an instrument flight, flight plane, he will tell you to squawk, like squawk 7654. That's a number he wants you to punch in, so then he sees that. So your thing is telling him who you are, what you are, you know, a lot of transponders will say I'm a, the information shows up on his radar screen. You know, like if you're in a Boeing 737, it'll say B73 and he knows what that is. And then it'll, it'll, the data block on the radar screen will show him who you are, what altitude you're at and how fast you're going. And, uh, the squawk that you, that, that he made you give. So like if he says squawk 724000 or seven squawk 7240 and you punch that into your squawk, it'll show up on his radar screen. Okay, so transponders are 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 really what the information that a transponder provides is what air traffic control will see on their radar screen. Okay, so you know it, it it's all very information heavy. 
there's a lot of very specific things you need to know. And like, you know, every, every jet that people fly, big jets, small jets, they have to get type. The pilots have to be type rated on it. They have to know how to fly it. So they go to school for that specific jet, you know, um, it, it gets, it gets so aviation at the professional level, at the military level, aviation at the, uh, the civil, you know, level general aviation is even complicated, but you know, commercial scheduled air carrier shit that is very complicated cargo is very complicated you know so um i did not control planes <laughs> i was not an air traffic controller i was just the manager of the field my concern was the airport itself the physical airport and uh you know i didn't have anything to do with any of that stuff that i just told you about except to watch the field so now you have a, a bet pro- i hope you have a better understanding of how aviation in america works um you know, uh, most people, when I talk about this, they will ask what, what, what about space? And so I think that the general rule is that controlled airspace at 60,000 feet, uh, above that, I think you're considered in space. Um, you have to get permission from the FAA. And I think also, I think NASA has something to do with it, but you have to get permission from the, the governing agencies to travel into space. So like, you know, Elon Musk's uh, SpaceX rockets, his Falcon rockets, when they go up, they have to get permission from the FAA to go into space flight. You know, so it's still, even though it's, it's in space, uh, as far up as fucking Saturn, or, you know, uh, terminally, all the way out, all airspace above the United States is controlled by the FAA, and you do have to have um, permission from the governing authority to fly in that space. Now, does... You know, the FAA know that Russia is flying a fucking spy satellite over the U.S.? Well, of course they wouldn't know, you know, if, if the technology didn't provide for it, you know, if we couldn't detect it. But uh, in most cases, yes, space flight is regulated by the FAA also. There's a whole bunch of rules for that, too. I think NASA has a lot. I, like I said, I think NASA has a lot to do with it. But anyway, my job was maintenance of the field. I was worried about the airport. I was mostly general aviation. We did not have a control tower. I didn't do anything with air traffic control, although as a pilot, I am educated in that stuff. You know, I have a very, very broad knowledge about aviation in general because of my background as a pilot and an educated flight dispatcher. Flight dispatchers are the guys who they set up the flight, they schedule the flight, they get the fuel, they get the crew, they do the manifest, they do the weight and balance, blah, blah, blah. They, they control everything for the pilot on the ground. They put it all together. And then they hand that off to the pilot of the commercial flight. And so I have that education. I'm also a, let's see, a licensed drone pilot and shit. So, you know, like I know a lot about aviation. I was actually perfect for that job. It's just that I worked for a complete cocksucker who was only concerned about how little money he could pay to have all of his shit taken care of for him and then act like he was King Dick. Anyway, that is my basic breakdown of aviation in America, airspace, general aviation, you know. Uh, I know that you probably have a thousand questions. So if you have any questions, you can refer that shit to my Facebook. Go ahead and shoot me a message or, or, you know, if there's something you would like me to talk about in uh, upcoming episodes about this stuff that I've, I've, I've talked about today, go ahead and do that. Anyway, I'm out of breath. I've been talking for like an hour and a half, almost two hours. I think, uh, let's see, what do we got? Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm in an hour and a half. So we got an hour and a half of content here for you. Um, another big shout out before I go to those of you who are contributing. There are now multiple people contributing a monthly amount of money to my podcast. Pour Me Another is making a little dough. And with that dough, I fully intend to pay for gas and food because I'm broke as fuck right now. Anyway, to whoever you are, 
I already thanked my one buddy, Brandon, but whoever else is contributing to the show, thank you. I deeply appreciate it. I never thought in my wildest dreams that me talking into a microphone would yield even one pizza's worth of money, but it has. I've made 20 bucks so far, so whoever it is out there making contributions to pour me another, thank you all very, very much. If you would like to con- contribute to the show, uh, again, you can go to anchor.fm slash pour me another. There is uh, the ability to contribute there. Um, uh, some people have told me I should make a Patreon. I don't know that I have the followers to make a Patreon just yet. I might do it. If you don't know what Patreon is, it's a sort of like a crowd crowd uh, funding website for uh, you know content creators like YouTube and podcasts and shit like that. So I've been thinking about making a Patreon. I don't know. I've only been doing this shit for a few months, and uh, my numbers aren't exactly high. But for those of you who are listening, I would like to say thanks for hanging in there. I'm sorry I haven't been able to make as many episodes as recently. The format of the show is changing. Like normally today, I would have had the asshole of the month and douchebags of history. I'm going to put that with the episode where I talk about movies and video games and stuff every month. So add a little bit more content to those intermediate episodes. My next episode, I I know I said I was going to do an interview. I think I said I was going to do an interview. I didn't get to do it. I'll do my next episode will be an interview of fucking somebody. I don't know who, but I will get an, I will get a guest and we'll get in here we'll talk about some shit and we'll keep you all entertained. So once again, from a bedroom in Virginia, this is your host, John Lale. Signing off for Pour Me Another. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for contributing. I hope you enjoyed the show. Any questions, any comments, any feedback, see my social media. I'm on Instagram and Facebook. But uh, thank you for listening again. And I hope everybody has a fantastic fucking week. (laughs) 